Hi, I'm Lauren Berlingeri, co-founder and co-CEO of Higher Dose, and this is The Hot Seat. And I'm here today with Stacey London, who is a stylist expert, who's known for what not to wear, which yeah. in Canada, that was probably one of the biggest shows ever, I have I, to just say. I did feel like Cher every time I went to Canada. <laughs> and now she is the queen of menopause. So <laughs> I can't what a funny title. I know. Menopause it's, royalty. It's a funny progression, too. So I'm so excited to yeah. just dig into how you got started. First of all, how did you get into fashion and styling? I mean, I knew you grew up in New York City, so I'm sure that yeah. was helpful, but... Um, it was helpful and not helpful. I don't think that that's why I got into fashion. I think I got into fashion because um, I was very insecure. I had a skin disease when I was younger that was, I covered my body. I have a ton of autoimmune diseases, which we will talk about because I know how important higher dose is in relation to that for me. You would never know. So definitely whatever it was, I feel oh, yeah. like you've worked on it because your skin is flawless now. So You're very kind. Well, no, I had psoriasis from the time that I was three and a half. And, um, oh, wow. When I was 11, I had strep throat so many times and nobody knew back then that strep throat was connected to autoimmune diseases and could make them worse. And certainly with psoriasis. So for my neck down, I was covered in scales. Because you had strep virus that mm -hmm. was just dormant in your that body? That was dormant in my body. They put me on penicillin for three years, every day for three years. I, I just have the destroyed. exact same story, you know that? No. It's so weird because I feel like strep throat has kind of disappeared a little bit. Yeah. But I was on penicillin every three months from the time I was nine years old till I went to high school and then strep throat turned into bladder infections. See, that's really interesting. I, they gave it to me prophylactically trying to kill my chronic strep. So I took it every day for three years, which destroyed my gut health, destroyed it, and did nothing to actually kill the strep. In, when I was 17 years old, they took my tonsils out. It was They were still completely infected with strep after all that penicillin. And that's when my skin got better. Wow. Yeah. And then later in life, I developed psoriatic arthritis and Renaud syndrome. So I've had to deal with a lot of autoimmune stuff. But it was the psoriasis that made me feel like a monster. Mm. You know, I mean, kids are not kind when you're young and something like that happens. I had hair longer than I have now. And I had uh, psoriasis so badly on my scalp that we had to put coal tar on it every night. And the only way to get it out was with boric acid. So my mom used to have to scrub my scalp every day. And so I had to cut my hair into a crew cut, oh which was gosh, that's so maybe exciting. more devastating than actually the treatment for my scalp. But it had a terrible effect on my self-confidence. And I saw fashion as this escape, as this kind of beautiful, sparkly world where I could be beautiful and cool and wonderful. Mm. So around 16 is really when I started to focus on fashion. And when I graduated from college, I was actually an independent major in philosophy, psychology, and German literature at the oh, wow. turn of the 20th century. Never thought that would come in handy, but it did, actually, as it turns out. I went, my first job out of college was at Vogue. I was the mm. fashion assistant there for three different editors and all at the same time. So Was had, it like Devil's Wear Prada? Exactly like okay. that. <laughs> Just to be clear, almost exactly to the T, that movie really got a lot of things I right. also came from the fashion industry and it's so toxic. It's, like, so toxic. So being in health and wellness now, I'm like, ah. But, you know, the fashion industry for me was, I was in it for 10 years before I really recognized, not that it was just toxic, that it was the kind, I was turning into a, the kind of person that I did not want to be. Mm. I had to have that kind of narcissistic, mm -hmm. materialistic phase because I'd had such an ugly duckling phase before. Right. To realize that you could be beautiful? 
not even that I could be beautiful, that beauty was something that I misinterpreted as being external mm. as opposed to something internal and as opposed to something that comes from breeding self-confidence, right? Mm. And so it took me that amount of time really to kind of look at fashion as an industry that is built on our insecurities, yep. that preys on our insecurities, yeah. as opposed to style, which is, you know, about the individual. Yep. And for a long time... expression and creativity. Absolutely. And, yeah. and all the wonderful things that it can be. Um, and also kind of understanding how much power style gives you. That controlling the narrative of your appearance is really what gives you power in your own life. Yep. Right? You control how people see you. Mm -hmm. You get to control how people respond to you without ever, you know, necessarily speaking a word. Mm -hmm. And there's true power in that when you get to understand that it can be part of your personal identity. Yep. Um, unlike, let's say, a social media account, which is a tool that yep. is not an identity. Yes. So I felt very strongly about that. And I worked in magazines until I was 30. I thankfully got fired from Mademoiselle by a new editor-in-chief who came in and cleaned house. And I didn't realize at the time how fortunate I was to have that door closed. Mm. Because one thing that I definitely learned was that I got very comfortable working at a magazine, yeah. especially when I was the senior fashion editor at Mademoiselle. Because, you know... Because of the title, too, and once the you're title, in, yeah. Exactly. You're on the masthead. You got to go to the fashion shows. Yeah. You got to take cars home so if you were. So glamorous. Like, yeah. It was so glamorous. I was like... And I had, like, a... Uh, I, I, you know, I had a regular salary, you yeah. know, 401k. Like, all these things that made me feel comfortable mm -hmm. and safe in a way that did not challenge me. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got pushed out of that nest that I really started to look for what was... What, I, what did I really want? Yeah. And that year... I started styling because I freelance styling. I had an agent, but I wasn't styling like high fashion. I was styling like bank commercials and mm -hmm. children's high C commercials. Right. And, you know, I was staying up late at night to like iron on patches to like, you know, little kids, you know, overalls. And I learned how to dress all kinds of mm -hmm. people, not just six foot tall, hundred pound models. Yep. And I even saw in dressing people for commercials, oh my God, I love this choice. I love this color. I love, you, you're so smart in the way you thought about this. And even clients were starting to say to me, like, I remember I had a floor client, right? And we were shooting in this Tribeca loft. They were doing like wood floor paneling or something. And the way that I dressed this family, the agency was so excited mm -hmm. because they felt like it had character. And I thought, there is something to this. I just don't know what it what? is that mm -hmm. I want. And then I got a phone call about some little show on some channel that some production company, something with a C, ABC, NBC, BBC, TLC. <laughs> and I went in and over, I don't know, God, it must have been like at least six to eight months, um, every freelance stylist in the city auditioned for this show. I still didn't know even what it was necessarily. But did you get it because you had that message where you could dress almost anyone and you know, help everyone feel their best self, yeah, regardless no, of their size or no, shape. No, no, it's that I Because could, that was kind of your message it, in the end, it's right? Certainly, but yeah. that was more the philosophy of the show. What I think got me the show was that they were looking for somebody who had had editorial experience, mm. who had styled celebrities, and I'd done a ton of celebrity covers at Mademoiselle, and then I'd worked with a bunch of celebrities when I was freelance, and um, could dress real people, mm -hmm. and could talk a lot without a script. Those, uh. were the, those were the base requirements. <laughs> Everything else came after that. And right. really one of the most miraculous experiences in the 10 years, 12 seasons that we did wow. What Not to Wear was um, 
the compassion and empathy that I really experienced for the people that we were working with grew so much over time. Mm -hmm. To see people, particularly women, mm -hmm. beat themselves up for the way that they looked or not understanding how style could make them feel mm -hmm. so powerful, not only allowed me to be kinder to people in general, it allowed me to be a lot more compassionate and kind with myself. To yourself. Mm -hmm. And I was great at being critical because I have had an inner critic in my life since I was three, Same. right? The minute I knew, like, when, when that doctor said she's got a chronic disease, and I remember the first time I ever went up to my mom. I wrote about this in my book, Style, um, The Truth About Style. Um, the first time I felt psoriasis, I had it on the back of my ear. It just felt like chicken skin, like bumps. And I kept trying to like pick them off like scabs and they wouldn't go away. And I went up to my mom and I must have been making a weird face because the thing she said to me that well, I will never forget is, what's wrong with you? Mm. And she was asking like, you know, what, what, why do you look that way? But I took it as there is something wrong with me. Yeah. And that stayed with me and I internalized that for so long that to some degree, I fought that my entire career. I've been fighting that my entire life. Yeah. And some of those kind of childhood traumas mm. stay with you. Yeah. And you kind of learn to live alongside them or you learn to rationalize them in a way that allows you Versus to Versus overcome the them, right. almost. That's because right. now it's your identity, so That's what right. would you be without, without psoriasis? Or what would I be without that insecurity? What would I be without those limiting beliefs that I can't do certain things or whatever? And I've spent my midlife instead of having a crisis, trying to push crisis into renaissance, hmm. to relook at all of those voices, to relook at all of those kind of internal messages and internal messaging and limited belief systems that have held me back from doing even more of the things that I want to do with my life. But how have you been doing that? Is it through therapy? Was it well, through like... Well, I mean, sure, you know, every like New York City kid goes do? to therapy. Yeah. Let me tell you, it's like we're, it's an elite club. Uh, we, we, we've all been in it. But... Um, or do you think the show was a big part of your I, healing? I think the show was a huge part of my healing. I really do. I think... Because um, here you are probably trying to show women how beautiful they are. Yes. And, and you it can't do felt that from so a natural place. to you because you actually saw them as beautiful. And then you probably looked in the mirror afterwards and was like, hold on a second. Well, you wait know, a minute. I yes. think I need to give myself some of my own medicine. A little bit of take a take a dose of your own medicine. But yeah, it was also that I couldn't believe that these people w that we were working with could ever say something mean about themselves. Mm. I saw them as such full human beings, smart, intellectual, funny like remarkably insightful, intelligent, and they couldn't see their yeah. own beauty. So there was so much pain in that for me mm -hmm. that when I started to recognize, oh wait, of course you're great at being a critic. Of course you're great at that. It's because I couldn't see it in myself. I've spent the rest of my adult life up to now not only trying to see the beauty in myself, but also the complications in myself, also my flaws, also all the things that I can continue to work on and improve my relationships, my relationship with myself. That, that, that search really came to a head when I was about 47. And part of the reason for that was... Were you still on the show then? No, I was not on the show. I had done a year of creating a syndicated talk show that got bought and never made, oh. which was... Heartbreaking. A, a heart, 
yeah. heart-wrenching to me. Um, I went back and I did something for TLC, another show called Love Luster Run, which was about the difference between transmission versus translation. Mm. What do we think we're saying to the world and what does the world actually think that we're saying? And the disconnect between those two things and how you can navigate and manage and control that narrative Right, better. through things like style or posture or like how you say things or uh, like the, how do you do that? The style mostly, right? Oh, okay. I mean, yes, there's body language. There's a whole other host of things that you can do. But I was talking about style. When somebody would come to me and think that it was powerful to dress head to toe, PVC, take contacts that even took out the not just your pupil, but your entire eye. So it looked like you had black holes for eyes and canary yellow hair because you want somebody to think that you're powerful. I'm like, you're you're maybe conflating yeah. powerful with terrifying. Let's figure out how to convey powerful that feels true to you. Yeah. So like I'm using a specific example of a woman who was on the show who came to me in those, you know, in that outfit, with that hair and those contact lenses. But we didn't change her. We curated her, right? We amplified what she wanted. Right. So we gave her kind of lavender hair mm -hmm. instead of yellow hair. Mm -hmm. And we kept her actual gorgeous eye color and, you know, did a beautiful makeup palette for her. And we made her more sort of Edie Sedgwick with this, mm. like, twist. And I could, I mean, the beauty, like, emanated out of her. And she felt so powerful in a way that actually connected with the people around her instead of disconnecting with the people around mm -hmm. her. Even her boyfriend couldn't get over it. You know, so we we worked on ways to be more of who you wanted to be by honing the actual message you wanted to mm -hmm. send and then working on that through style. So I was very proud of that show. I executive produced that show I for three like seasons. I feel like everyone should have access to that. It's true. It's like such a thing that I feel like a lot of people struggle with because especially now on social media, you're like scrolling and you're like, oh, wow, look at her. She has this bleach blonde hair and so sexy. I guess that's what sexy means. And then you like dye your hair so blonde and it's really not communicating who you are and not highlighting your personality at all. Yeah. And then it ends up like not working for you. Well, this is what I say about social media, right? I mean, obviously we know there are filters, there are fillers, there's Botox, there's all the things that like make people appear maybe one way than they are in real life, yeah. right? So social media is an identity tool. It can create a brand for you. It can do all sorts of things for you. But at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, when you go to sleep at night and you don't have filters or ring lights going on, how do you feel? Mm. And also compare and despair is probably the worst part of social media, that you are scrolling and you are seeing people who have manipulated their image or taken a thousand selfies to choose one that they think represents them best can be very taxing on us personally yep. if we don't have a very clear sense of our own identity. And this that. is why we're seeing higher rates of depression in young teens and higher rates of depression in people overall. I mean, I am a middle-aged woman. I'm 53 years old. And sometimes I find myself doom scrolling through Instagram and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah, why am I putting myself through this? Before social media, all these people were still doing all these things in the world. We didn't need to know about every mm. single second of it. And it allowed us to focus more on ourselves. Yeah. So when I think about what happened to me at 47, part of it was this idea that I felt like my phone had stopped ringing. I wasn't doing as much television as I'd been doing before. I, I had been co-hosting on The View for a year. And do you think that had to do with your age? I don't know whether it had to do with my age or whether people just thought I was a pain in the ass to work with. Hard to say. <laughs> but I know that I started to feel different at 47. I started to feel like I didn't look the same. I started to feel like my body wasn't the same. I started to feel really those deep 
feelings of insecurity and that crisis of confidence that I'd had when I was a kid mm. and I couldn't but shake it's just them. a whole list of other insecurities that you're not used to so now you have to like go through the process all over again well I think you just hit the nail on yeah. the head we don't recognize that no matter how much confidence we can gain at every stage of our life there's always going to come another point where something will hit us that will create a new insecurity or it will resonate with a, a core insecurity that you've always had and i just want to note that especially for women because we have so many more hormonal cycles than men do yes including pregnancy post-pregnancy before oh, you have a baby for, just fertility Period. Fertility and then, you know, like going through to menopause, which I'm so yeah. excited to talk to you about because as I reach into my 40s, I'm thinking about how do I delay menopause because I know delaying menopause is the healthiest thing that we can do for women. I, I, well, I would argue that point about delaying menopause is healthier. It is about preemptively preparing, preparing so that, you know, you know all of the information. You have vetted information. You have a vetted idea of the best doctors, best products, best practices. And that really is a, a big thing that I want to talk about in terms of... Um, how the industry is still disconnected from the consumer. There is still so much more work to do in education and advocacy. And just to go back, yeah, back I started it up to tell us to, to 47, your menopause story Yeah, because the menopause story starts at 47. And it started with this kind of crisis of identity. I don't look like myself. I don't feel like myself. And I don't know what to do about it, mm -hmm. which for me was an in, like insane, intense loss of agency. Right? Well, what Whereas were the main I used symptoms to be, that you were experiencing? Well, that's the thing. I didn't know they were symptoms of menopause. Mm. I, in 2016, had pretty severe and major seven and a half hour spine surgery. When I had the spine surgery, the first time I went into the doctor to see the x-ray of the titanium that was in my spine, I left that meeting and I started to feel this intense anxiety. I have foreign material in my body. Mm. I feel like I'm being eaten from the inside out. I couldn't sleep. I started to get hot flashes. And I thought this was all part of the response to the surgery. When you have a surgery to your spine, your heart, or your brain, your body doesn't know that it isn't going to die. Those, you know, three things, I guess the spine isn't really an organ, right? I don't know what you call it, but but those three things... But it's connected to your nervous system. Right, so. it's connected to your nervous system. So your body goes into fight or flight, mm -hmm. right? So I, I was told that anxiety and depression after the fact, when I was like, something feels wrong with me, I was told after the fact that a surgery like this could create those feelings. They don't tell you ahead of time because they don't want to suggest it and put it in your head. So for the longest time, I thought this is due to the spine surgery. Then I started to have these mood swings. Mm. Then I started to get crazy like skin problems, cystic acne, dry skin, like dry, like you couldn't drink enough water, you couldn't put on enough moisturizer, nothing worked. And I felt crazy. I started to feel the insomnia, the brain fog, the hot flashes, the night sweats, the the mood changes, The uh, all of a sudden I had like allergies to food I'd never had before. I had bloating. I had like itchy skin. I had dry skin. I, I mean, you name it. Is 47 early for menopause? At 47, they say it's perimenopause, right? So just to be clear, menopause is sort of the general term that we use. But when we're talking about the symptoms that I am describing, that is perimenopause. Perimenopause can start as early as 38. And the only true predictor that we really have right now, the best predictor is when your mom had it. Now, my mom had a radical hysterectomy. So 
she genetically speaking, I mean, chronologically speaking, we don't know when she would have gotten menopause. Mm. And when I think about... Because she didn't actually get menopause? She did, but she got it because of a radical hysterectomy. Mm. That's surgical menopause. That's not the same thing as coming to it chronologically, um, just through age. So generally speaking, we say that menopause happens, and menopause is one day. Menopause is actually the one-year anniversary without your period. If you go 12 months without a period, you have hit menopause. That is your happy anniversary menopause day. Because there's relief? No, it's just when your period stops. <laughs> and I think there should be relief. And I also think we should be celebrating and you should have a menopause party and there should be a menopause registry and you should well, get tons not, of presents. I'm surprised that your doctor wasn't like, hey, you um, might be going through menopause. So when I went to my like, doctor... women go through menopause. Like, yeah, how what, are you not like... Yeah. How do we not know? How are we not guided through this? Oh, babe. I mean, you're asking all the right questions that unfortunately no generation before us was really able to ask. And unfortunately, there's only two hours of menopause training in medical school. That's the same as nutrition. So two, two hours. hours of nutrition. Unless you go and do more classes to specialize in menopause. But is that because there's no real studies done on women with menopause? Well, right? yes. It's the biggest miss in the medical system, right? It's is the, the lack of studies. Yes, but it's the lack of studies in women's health overall. Okay, because when you're pregnant, you couldn't be in studies, right? Women were not required to be in any health study until, what was it? 2019. Yeah. And that was by the NIH. So you, 20, 2019, so we have so many holes in terms of clinical data and understanding menopause. And because it is so bio-individual, we can only give you sort of umbrella symptoms that are then going to be specific to you. Some you may have, some may be more severe, some may, you may, we, we can't tell you with any sort of real certainty what the severity of your symptoms is going to be like, what the frequency of your symptoms is going to be like, even if you're going to have symptoms. We don't know. But we can, we should be educating people much younger, even than you. Mm -hmm. After you've had a child, you should want to know about menopause. Yeah. Really, your menopause origin story starts with your period. Mm -hmm. If we're teaching people about their period, why aren't we teaching about the context of female, female physiology over time? Mm -hmm. So for me, I feel like that includes menopause. And just to be clear, I was having perimenopausal, which are called vasomotor symptoms, at the age of 47. Cut to... 18 months of physical therapy, I'm getting my body strong. Those symptoms are still happening, but I think this is a psychological thing, right? I think that all my physical symptoms are because I'm experiencing such anxiety and rage and dread and things that felt very out of whack. And as I recovered from that surgery, my father got very, very sick, really sick. And he got sick in March of 2018. I had the surgery in December of 2016, so all of 2017 was really rehab. In the beginning of 2018, around March, my dad got very ill, and he passed away in November of 2018. Oh. So it happened very quickly, and I was... And are him. you working on television at this time? No. I was doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. I spent every day with my dad. And um, for the... Not every day. I would say most days, me or some family member was with him. Mm -hmm. And when it got to the point where he needed to have his blood checked every day and go to the hospital every day and making sure there was a car service, all of the things that we had to do was incredibly stressful. And I started to notice that I was getting heart palpitations. And I thought that was because my dad was dying of heart disease. He would throw up because his organs weren't working very well and he couldn't keep food down. And I started throwing up from food that I used to be able to eat all the time. All of a sudden I had these like weird allergies. 
he would get a skin rash. I would get a skin rash. He would have muscle cramps. I would have muscle cramps. And I thought, oh my God, this is the physical manifestation of fear and grief that I'm going to lose him. Wow. And then I did. And so my, my, my mood was very bleak. During this time, my you doctor- you almost experienced death yourself. Yeah. And what it felt like to die. I don't know that I experienced what it felt like to die, but I was with my father when he died. And, um, sorry. Yeah, no, it's like, I, I can't say I have ever been able to experience that. I have both my parents, but I know that's probably my, one of my biggest fears is losing my parents or my own children. Yeah, it is, um, it's a real rite of passage. It is coming face to face with mortality for the first time. And I don't know that everybody gets the honor of being with somebody when they pass away, but... But you know, also going through, as much as you were going through, you're probably at your lowest point. Yeah. And then to be caring for your father, who you know is dying, and see him suffer like that... Well, you know, we thought, very heavy. We, we thought we were gonna, we thought we were gonna beat it. Everybody thinks they're gonna beat it, right? Everybody thinks, whatever it is, that there's hope. So I think we were, we thought we had more time mm -hmm. than we had. Um, but for me, it was, yes, to have a, a loss of that proportion, um, in retrospect, at the time I could not have said any of this to you, but it really was the first time that I had to face being middle-aged, mm -hmm. right? And middle-aged is really about being in the middle. Mm -hmm. I am not talking about, I, I, I love being middle-aged and I am, I am convinced that we need to have a crisis to get to the Renaissance and losing your parents is part of it and knowing that your next is part of it mm -hmm. in, in sort of, you know, lineage. And, um, at the time, I couldn't have said any of that to you. But when I look back at it now, I think, A, what a privilege it was to be, you know, he was there when, when I came into the world and I was there when he left. And I am his oldest child. Mm -hmm. I made him a dad. You know, we, we had a, um, a very special connection. But I thought that it was both the spine surgery and the loss of my father that basically just took its toll on me physically, psychologically, and that's why I was having all those symptoms. Now, anybody who knows anything about perimenopause will know that all of the symptoms that I listed that I thought were either from the surgery or losing my dad are all perimenopausal. Hmm. And my mom... And, and my was mom. there things that you could have done to help oh. you process that? So my doctor said to me I was not a candidate for hormones. I, I really, I recommend this very highly. If your doctor does not give you more of an explanation about menopause, my doctor said to me, it, it might be menopause, you'll get through it. That is not a sufficient answer. Mm. And you are allowed to fire your doctors if you know and feel like you're instinct is telling you that something isn't right until you find a doctor who can understand, listen, and actually support you in whatever journey that is, whether it's hormones. Turns out I couldn't take hormones because of my health profile, but I had no other information. When I went through this, there was nothing happening. And I started to think about the correlation between chronological menopause, meaning mm -hmm. coming to it at midlife. Usually 51 is when the cessation, that one year cessation of your period happens. And why a Scientific American did a study, 45 to 55 mm -hmm. in women's lives is the highest rate of decreased earning potential, divorce and depression. Hmm. And I do not and think that's by accident. And don't any correlation there. Of course there is, but nobody's done it, right? But why would that be? I mean, one of the things that also happens in menopause is like sex can become painful with vaginal dryness. You can lose your libido altogether. 
intimacy is an entirely new frontier again. Well, and could you imagine trying to be intimate while you're feeling like that? Like you probably... Of course not. That's the last thing that you would want. But women tend to feel deep shame around this. And rather than having open, honest conversations with their partners, this can get very tricky. And this is why I think we're seeing increases in divorce. Or because in midlife, you may have empty nest syndrome and you look at your partner of 25 years and you're like, do we still have anything in common? So do you think that there's a lot of shame around the word menopause? I think there is a ton of shame. But more I than that, I even already feel that. That like it's kind of like meaning the beginning of getting older. Yeah, it is the gateway. But yeah. that's not, if you're coming to it chronologically, there's no barrier to age with menopause. If you have a radical hysterectomy at 25, you're going to be thrown into menopause. If you have chemo or you're taking tamoxifen for breast cancer, you're going to go into medical mm -hmm. menopause. So it's not just about age, but, but culturally speaking, yes, I think that women are ashamed to age, period. Mm -hmm. We are taught that it is it's almost illegal. And that's the root of it all. Right. That is, we are not allowed to age, and I think that is because in a patriarchy, men don't want to watch women age because it reminds them they're going to die. On top of that, which, boom, there is no studies to support. On well, top of that, right? Right. Are, wait, and we're starting to see a lot more. I listened to a Peter Atia podcast, yes. and uh, he was speaking to um, Dr. Huberman. Uh-huh. And they were talking about how um, menopause and going through menopause and, and female hormones is the biggest miss in the whole entire medical system. Of course and it is. And it was all based on this one study that happened. In like 2002. 2002. And it they was... studied women that had hysterectomies and like, not like that woman that is pre-menopausal, right. you know, which is where you should do the studies on versus like some of them had a hysterectomy. Some of them already were going through menopause. Some of them are already going through it which like ended up giving out the wrong information that hormones a thousand percent are, are bad not, are bad right and now we're seeing a huge resurgence of uh, doctors coming out and saying, hey, hormones are not bad. That study was completely misinterpreted. If you talk to any medical physician, they will tell you that the best way to manage menopause is through hormones. Absolutely no question. And not everybody can take them and not mm -hmm. everybody can afford them and not everybody wants to take them. So we need to look Don't at menopause. Don't you think they should be included in healthcare? Yeah, of course they should. That's why we have so many amazing companies like Genev, like Electra Health, that are trying to work with insurance companies to make sure that women, uh, or you know, those who have physiological female, you know, reproductive organs, are getting the kind of help that they need. But because that is not the truth right now, we also have to expand what our idea of menopause is. We also have to reframe what this idea of aging is. So pretty much you have to take menopause into your own hands. I wouldn't say that you just have to take it into your own hands. I think it is also time that we shift the cultural conversation and stop thinking of menopause as an end and start thinking of it as a true transition because you are going to face many different stages in your life. Why we villainize this one mm. when it is the opportunity you're done having children. Maybe you want to change your significant relationship. Maybe you are ready for a different job. Instead of saying it's your highest rate of decreased earning potential, it's the highest rate of divorce and depression, let's dig into those things. Mm -hmm. Why do those things need to be so? Because I'm telling you, there is opportunity on the other side of this. And being postmenopausal is still menopausal. So you're going to be in menopause from whatever time you go, you start perimenopause all the way until you're in the grave. Mm. You are menopausal. That is a third to a half of your life. We have to stop thinking about it as like some sort of criticism mm -hmm. or some sort of, you know, tragedy or betrayal to age. 
there is so much power in the middle of a novel, right? That's yep. the plot twist. Yep. We are in the middle of our lives. And because of what we know about health now, because we know that we've extended our lifespans at least into our 80s and 90s, how can you say in your 40s and 50s you're done? Yeah. What are you going to do with all that time on your hands if you're not taking this opportunity to reinvent and kind of find a way back to yourself. This is a homecoming. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that has adequately been expressed yep. in the media at all. How and, are you getting that message out there? Well, I started with my company, State of Menopause, because I truly thought there's a problem in this industry and there are people who are you know, really struggling through symptoms and there's no over-the-counter acute symptomatic relief. And I acquired a brand that I had been a beta tester for. And that was before I really knew more about the company and not, not about the company, but about the industry. Mm -hmm. And my original thought was problem solution. Mm -hmm. You have a symptom. We will find a way to kind of mitigate that symptom through product, through product medication, right? Yeah. Product was the answer. Two years later, I just recently closed the company because I think that product is only part of the answer. Mm -hmm. And I want to take a step back into education, advocacy, and really And community create, too, right? Of course, because community, edu education and advocacy, I truly believe is what creates community, community around vetted information, truthful, like shared environments where, again, when I use the word safe space, I mean for everybody. Yep. Um, and that includes anybody who's experiencing any kind of hormonal you know, uh, transition, whether that's uh, for the trans community or um, for menopause. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be thinking in different terms about what, what this actual rite of passage means. Mm -hmm. And I think that we aren't doing enough culturally mm -hmm. to change the stigma. Mm -hmm. And medically, lots is happening, right? Medic, but it's coming. The medical stuff is actually, you've got pharma coming for this. You've got so many people who are focused on menopause and not just menopausal beauty, not just dry skin or collagen or that topical stuff, but the, right, not just topical. Like we are going to see real solutions coming down the pike. I, I definitely know there's a lot more businesses opening around fertility, right? Well, that's been happening and for 10 years. For 10 years now, right? Are these same like companies around fertility also educating about menopause Some, or is it totally different Right now, Right now, I think they're separate industries because I think that most people see that they can make more money that way, mm. right? That's another problem that I just have ethically is that I felt like just selling product for me was getting in the way of my being able to be honest because I always had to be selling something, yeah. right? And in the and holistic approach to what you know works. Absolutely, mm -hmm. like which is why I wanna be here and talking about higher dose and what it means to do sauna, what it means to take a cold plunge, how there are so many things in wellness that do matter that are available to most people. Democratization of wellness mm -hmm. has to happen. And accessibility. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little tired of, you know, very wealthy white women telling everybody this magic potion will work. Yeah. And I started to fear that that was the territory I was going to get into mm -hmm. if I didn't really start to sit down with medical professionals, um, with psychological professionals, and think of a way to create community that really encompasses the biggest issues, not just surrounding menopause, but the way that we're looking at midlife. Right. So that is everything from sexual wellness to mental health, to financial wellness, to um, menopause, to nutrition and fitness, to style. Yeah. Like we need, to, we need to, we need to do something 
bigger mm -hmm. that really identifies and marks this stage of life as something exciting. Nothing comes without challenges, right. but the opportunities here are not about the opportunities to make money off people. It is about the same thing I did at What Not to Wear. Mm. How do you take somebody who can't see themselves anymore for the beautiful, amazing, compassionate, intelligent, amazing people they are and give that confidence back to them? Mm, I love that. That's so powerful. Because I will tell you, for me, menopause was not just the loss of identity and loss of agency. It was a true crisis. Maybe what we consider to be the midlife crisis, but it was a crisis of confidence. And that is something I know how to fix. Mm. And so I just felt like I needed to take a step back because I am not leaving I'm not leaving this community. Mm -hmm. I will never leave this community. Now that I know what needs to be done in terms of the work here, you couldn't pry me away. But it needs to be done from many different angles, not just one. And I think that also makes, you know, sort of the sugar with the medicine goes down easier, yeah. right? Um, a spoonful of sugar makes, makes the medicine, medicine go down. down. Right there. It took me a second for Mary Poppins. Um, so if we're going to talk about menopause, let's talk about all of the things about yeah. menopause. Let's talk about, you know, weight gain really is due to aging and slow metabolism, yeah. right? Menopause is about body weight redistribution. Mm. So let's say all of a sudden your boobs get bigger or you get a little meno middle. How are you dressing in a way that makes you feel confident? Like, yeah. I didn't bring style with me. I didn't bring all of the knowledge that I had gained in the last 30 years into this with me, thinking that one-to-one, -one, problem, solution, yeah. person, product yeah. was the way to go. And now I realize, no, we in the wellness industry, in the health community, are talking about menopause nonstop. Yeah. The press is writing about it. Menopause is having its moment. But the thing is, if it's having its moment, there's going to be- It's been around forever. It's, not only has it been around forever, then it's a fad. It's a trend. We're going to stop writing about it. We're going to stop right. talking about it. We need to make- menopause and midlife part of the cultural zeitgeist. So this is about overseeing what middle-aged women are portrayed like in television, in films, how we talk this about women in articles. This is a revelation, for sure. For sure. It is a revolution, not just mm. a revelation. Mm. And for me, that has more to do with the fact that Gen X, in particular, my generation, has never gotten to a point where we haven't been able to learn something. There has never been a moment that we haven't been able to research something, whether it was like back in the day when we were using encyclopedias at the library or Google, right? Now we have gotten to this point where there's just a black hole. Yeah. And Gen X in particular will not stand for it. Yeah. I think we are the last generation to experience the generational shame of aging and the first generation to break the tablet. Amen. And you're leading all of that. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. That is amazing. Well, what was the goal of hosting the Menopause Summit? Oh, well, that's a, that's such a good question. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, really, the goal was because I saw the writing on the wall, right? I wanted, I realized all of these small companies and a ton of menopause companies are popping up, and they've popped up in the last, even last year, all have small voices, yep. right? We all have small voices. We, are, we have a reluctant consumer who does not want to talk about this. So I wanted to gather the press and all of my competitors and people who are complementary to the work that I was doing in my company and say, hey, press. Look at all these people that I was able to get together. You need to see there are a lot of us out mm. here. And you need to stop writing about menopause as a fad yep. or a trend and get in with us for the long haul. Yep. What does this look like when it comes to your magazine, your newspaper, your newsletter? How are you weaving midlife into the cultural zeitgeist mm -hmm. more effectively? Know that this is not a moment, it's a movement. And bringing all of these different companies together was like, we 
we don't serve this consumer by competing. And we're such a capitalist society, that's all we can see. But by collaborating, not only do we serve her, not only if I don't make a product, do I recommend my competitors immediately to any customer, I want her to trust mm. that I am looking out for her, that I have her best interests yep. at heart, not that I'm trying to make a buck. Yep. Of course, we all want successful businesses, but we want successful businesses based on doing good. Yep. We want to do well because we do good. Yep. And I was starting to see that that could be a problem. Yep. So. I think the customer is also very confused by this new onslaught of all and these new And just in health and wellness general. Of I feel like there's so much conflicting information out there, and it really needs to be more of a bio-individual conversation, and right? And streamlined, exactly. And streamlined. And Absolutely. that's why I love community. It's because you can hear other people's stories, other people's journeys, other people's symptoms, and see yourself in that person, and then start to like test maybe what would work on you. A thousand percent. Right? Yeah, and I then mean, that trust part right. comes in where you don't feel like you're just being sold a product, right. but really a solution. A solution which is holistic. We give you a community of people who speak a shared language with you. We want to give you vetted information and we want to start vetting product for you. I mean, this is what I want to start doing. Because of my relationship with all of these companies from doing the summit and getting to know all of these companies and what they so do smart. best, now I'm able to vet and recommend other brands to this consumer and I don't feel like I'm being untrue to myself, mm -hmm. which was an issue for me. Yep. I loved our product, yep. but there is a disconnect between what our product was solving for and the bigger issues and sort of taboos around menopause. It is a conversation that requires psychology and medicine and wellness, naturopathic, Ayurvedic, Chinese medicine. We're not looking at this holistically enough. Yep. Um, and it's part of the reason that you see women in midlife spending twenty dollars to $30,000 a year looking for answers when that concentrated kind of money could really be put towards better use where she's saving money and she has less decision fatigue and she has clear information and actionable ideas about what to do. That's so good. I feel like you as a spokesperson is making menopause sexy. So <laughs> if I can look like you and oh my God, that's really, I'm take pleased. like such pain and turn it into like such encouragement and power and beauty, I'm like so in awe of you. So well, you know, as I, I'm like sweating, getting salt in my I know, eyes, I'm, I'm like, are, is she not dying like I, I am right now? I'm dying. I'm dying, but I'm also gonna say that it was very painful to get here. Like I don't, I don't want to minimize but that, that seems and to I don't want to minimize journey. You no, know? like yes. you almost need to experience such physical pain in order for you to manifest and cultivate all of this like energy into like being such a thought leader well, and physical, visionary, and emotional and physical, and physical and emotional. And started with physical, yes, then it and turned then to turned emotional. To, and actually, emotion, mood, and skin were the first things, but. I dismissed them. And that's one other thing I want to say. Every single symptom in menopause, easily dismissible. Mm -hmm. Easily, you know, mostly as women, we dismiss, we don't have time yep. for our own care. If you're experiencing one or two symptoms, you may not even put together that mood swings and cystic acne have anything to do with each other or, or, or joint pain has anything to do with rage, yep. right? So. It's really understanding holistically what's happening to you. There are now starting to be a lot of menopause trackers. So if well, you Well, I actually wanted to ask you, what yeah. are some of your favorite menopause tools yeah. or solutions that you feel like really stand out that people should really look to first? Well, I always say Electra Health's 21st Century Guide to Menopause. That is a great guide. It alphabetically lists the 34 most common symptoms and gives you different ways to at least think about managing them, mm -hmm. right? And then um, there are companies that are hormone telehealth companies like Evernow and Alloy that are both 
telehealth specific to menopause and creating a bio-individual program for you. Right, so they can tell you what phase of menopause you're in, and what might be good for this phase that you're in. Absolutely, and, yeah. and what um, if you do want to do hormones, what that protocol should look like. And then you need to look for doctors that specialize in menopause. Instead of OBGYNs, I, I generally recommend looking for people who are middle-aged GYNs. Mm -hmm. And there are exceptions. Dr. Uh, Suzanne Gilbert-Glenz in California. You've got uh, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith in Houston. Dr. But are Jen they Gunter. like specifically speaking about menopause? They and there's certainly are. Yeah. So Dr. Jen Gunter wrote the, uh, the Menopause Manifesto. Right. Um, and she is in San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Gilbert-Glenz is in LA and she wrote Menopause Boot Camp. And Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith, I'm now I'm totally for, oh, uh, Sexually Woke is mm. the name of her book, which is really about sexual wellness in midlife. And they all see patients. Mm. So that's just three, right? But one of the things that I say is there's also the North American Menopause Society. Some You can pay to be on that list. So it is important to do your due diligence when it comes because they really do vet a lot of doctors. Yep. But it's also important that you're finding the doctor that meets your needs, not just what their... Um, you know, minimum level of expertise. Got it. If you do not get answers that make sense to you, or you feel like you're being dismissed, you have permission to fire your doctor. And you can say, hey, I'm concerned about menopause, or you can say, make a list of all the issues you are experiencing before you go into your doctor. Take the top two biggest issues that are interfering with the quality of your daily life. Dr. Jen Gunter taught me this. And those two issues, solving for those two issues, because the average physician appointment is 11 minutes, can help maybe solve some of the smaller ones because mm. these are all particularly hormone related. Yeah, and coming from Canada and just experiencing the healthcare system there, yeah. which obviously there's some great things about it, but what I found to be particularly really bad about it is like firing your doctor is almost near impossible because you can't get another doctor. The wait lists are just like crazy. And when you get, a, um, you know, a prescription to see or a referral to see a specialist, you wait minimum three months up to like a year. I mean, this is the problem so with national health care, right? So really, it's like, yeah, you. I think in America you have more, especially if you have good health care, you have great um, doctors to have access to and you get to choose within your network. But in Canada, you don't always have that luxury. But, so educating but even, yourself. Yes, I understand. That is the issue in Canada. There are great things about socialized health medicine, and there are terrible things, right? And in a capitalist society, unfortunately, the rich get the best care and the poor get none. Yep. And so we have to find a way to equalize in both situations. But the most important thing that you can do is develop a relationship with your doctor where your doctor knows you are your own advocate mm -hmm. warrior yeah that you are not going to back down that yeah. you're not going to people please just because this is a medical physician that you're going to find the information that you need and bring it to them and say what can we do here yeah. what I is the be protocol that for works x for y and z because i know that this will help me with getting me to the next phase of maybe what my solution might be right and i will say one thing about that a lot of medical doctors will tell you you do not need to check hormone levels in order to prescribe hormones and that's a big freaking lie huge huge thing and the reason that you don't need to test hormones is because medically doctors are meant to treat symptoms and if you meet the criteria for menopausal age or for being in medical menopause or surgical menopause generally speaking finding the right dosage of hormone is more important than checking your blood levels before 
and which hormone to take, right? There's exactly. progesterone, there's estrogen, estrogen there's testosterone. Yeah. Um, testosterone is not FDA approved. That does not mean... Oh, really? Not is, in you, can you not take testosterone? So you can take testosterone, but the pellets, which is what a lot of people use for libido, um, is not FDA approved. So the, the delivery mechanism is not FDA approved, even though the hormone is. So again, there's a lot of complication because the FDA considers menopause to be a disease. They only recognize, medically recognize, two symptoms of menopause, hot flashes and vaginal dryness. Yep. We know there are at least 34 common ones and probably close to 100 that are uncommon. Yep. So what that means is one, as an over-the-counter company, we have a lot of trouble making claims yep. because the FDA does not recognize them. Efficacy does not mean that the FDA has to approve it. Efficacy yep. is efficacy, yep. and FDA approval is completely something else, right? Those are clinical trials, and that's like medical approval. But we also know that in naturopathic care, there are tons of things that do work to lower inflammation, that can help mitigate some menopausal symptoms that But even just FDA red light approved. therapy, red light therapy is an amazing tool to yeah. balance female hormones and boost testosterone in men. Uh -huh. And it also feeds the mitochondria so that you produce ATP, which means every cell in your body is functioning better. I mean, I I kind of know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> but then also use your intuition too. So if you're having, say, hot flashes, right, and night sweats, maybe doing the infrared sauna might be too much heat added to heat. Yes. So always kind of like tap into what I did the cold plunge before, or I did the cold spray, or I ate or cooling I had, foods. Or I had a cooling, uh, I had a cold shower when I woke up. Right. Very and much, I felt I way say, better. So there's trackers, you were saying. Yeah, that you there can are track. trackers like Midi Health is doing one, um, Lisa Health is doing one. Uh, there more and more are coming, I promise you, and you will hear about them for me for sure. Um, but one of the other things that I think is super important is finding community. Yeah. And there is a great community called Perry. Hey, Perry. And um, it is run by this amazing woman, Laura Crane, who has a huge community solely of perimenopausal women. Yeah. If you are looking for a place where you can actually talk to somebody with that shared language, that shorthand, where you don't have to explain how you're feeling or what you're afraid of, or is this normal, finding that kind of community is essential. It yeah. is part of the journey. Well, thank you so much. You've been a wealth of knowledge, and I'm just gonna say this, we haven't done this with uh, our shows yet, but you gave some amazing resources. Yes. So we definitely wanna link out in the show notes Great. to all of your resources, so you don't have to scroll back when you're listening to the podcast or watching the podcast. Mm -hmm. But again, just want to say thank you to you for being such an inspiration. Oh, thank you to you for being such an inspiration. Higher dose is like a way of life. <laughs> um, and make sure for all you guys out there that really enjoyed the show to subscribe and watch all of our episodes. Okay, I'm dying. It's time to get out. <laughs>